0: will open, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as our reading this morning will be in verses 18 to 25. In honor of the word of the King, would you please stand? Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, a story so very familiar to every one of us, For it's every year we are reminded on our calendars that December 25th is Christmas Day. The name of Christ imprinted right there on that particular day. So we have heard the stories of Jesus born to a virgin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. But as we consider these things today and the significance of Christ's birth, may we also understand how these things apply How might we live in light of the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem? What is the significance of the virgin birth and how it pertains to even his death and his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his reigning with God on high, his coming back again to judge the living and the dead? May we consider these things this morning, the first advent that we would be looking forward to his second advent And consider that Christ is King. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Some of you are probably aware that I've been watching a few movies recently. One of those films came out just this year. A musical that was entitled Journey to Bethlehem. It was an adaptation of the Christmas story done in a musical form. And was written and directed by a man who was popular for the TV show Glee. Now that particular show has a lot of liberal themes to it and he imposed some of those liberal themes onto his interpretation of the Christmas story, particularly in his version of Mary. This was one of the worst versions of Mary that I think I had ever seen in a film or a TV show. She was a very grumpy sort, someone who was not thankful or cheerful about anything. She argued with her father about the fact that he had put her in this arranged marriage to a man that she did not know. And this Mary decided, I don't want to be married. I want to pursue my career. I don't think there was any woman in Bethlehem at that particular time that was protesting marriage and wanting to pursue her career. But instead, you had some of the feminist tendencies that we see in the culture today imposed upon the biblical figure of this woman, who instead of rejoicing in God for including her in his divine and sovereign plan to bring salvation to sinners, instead this was a woman who griped and complained about her circumstances, as many of us are probably apt to do in our present context. It was interesting that despite this being a musical of the Christmas story, that There was no song of Mary, the Magnificat of Mary that we find in Luke chapter 1. Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. No such words came from this Mary and this particular rendition of the Christmas story, but this is the kind of attitude, the humility, the thankfulness, and the joy that filled the true Mary of the scriptures, the Mary of the Bible. And so as she expressed joy in God for bringing salvation into the world to save sinners, so we must exemplify this same joy and not just when we hear this story shared at Christmas time, but may this be the attitude that fills our hearts all year long. It is very common for us, we see this happen at Christmas time especially, but uh, this is something that as a pastor I have had to contend with even all year long. It is very common for us to take elements of the Bible and try to impose our world onto them. But that's exactly the opposite of what we read about going on here with Jesus coming into our world. So it's not about us taking our world and imposing it on Christ, but rather Christ steps into our world. And that's what we read about in the Christmas story. So as we come to this text this morning, again, as I mentioned, a text that... You are probably very familiar with, you have heard your whole life long, Jesus who was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Yet we come back to this text again this morning and we come to understand and hear not just the story again, but even understanding how it applies to our lives, how it even changes our living to know that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. The passage that I've selected this morning is Matthew 1, 18 to 26, or or 25 rather. Tonight we will continue on into the next chapter, into Matthew chapter 2, and hear the story of the Magi. But as we look at this particular text this morning, I want to glean out of this text for you five reasons why Jesus came. Now we could certainly come up with more than just five As a matter of fact, a friend of mine shared on social media this morning a sermon that was preached by John Piper a number of years ago in which he gave ten reasons why Jesus was born. That was his Christmas sermon. I'm not nearly as ambitious as John Piper to come up with ten, but I'm limiting myself to five because there are five things that we can draw from specifically this text. We could go throughout the scriptures and draw out various reasons that we may understand why Jesus came into the world, but as my time is limited... And I'm sticking to just this passage. We will look at just five. We're going to go through these five reasons why Jesus came. Then at the end, we'll go through them again and provide application. So in light of these things, how may we now live as Christians in this world? So consider again as we come to our text, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now to give you a little bit of context here as to what we are reading, the beginning of Matthew, especially these two chapters, are divided into these three ways. We have the lineage of the king, we have the birth of the king, and then we have kings visit the king. So first of all, the lineage of the king is what we had in verses 1 through 17. Matthew's gospel, the very start of the New Testament, begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that word genealogy has a common root word to it, meaning beginning, that is the same word that we use to name the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. So really, this is the beginning of Jesus Christ. It begins very similarly to the way the whole Bible begins. So we have the beginning of Jesus Christ, who is son of David, Israel's greatest king, and the son of Abraham, the man to whom God made a covenant and said, through you, all nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus Christ comes as a son of David, and Matthew establishes here that Christ is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. On your throne, I will establish my kingdom forever. So that we may know this Jesus Christ is the one who has come to reign, he is the one through whom God is reconciling all things to himself. And so we have that lineage that establishes Jesus to Abraham in those first few generations from Abraham then to David in verse 6. And then you have 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon that goes from verse 6 to verse 11. And then you have the deportation to Babylon to the birth of Christ, 14 more generations in verses 12 to 16. So Matthew lays out this genealogy that it may be understood that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Therefore, we have laid out for us the lineage of the king. After Matthew has established this lineage, we have next the birth of the king, which is what we're reading about here, verses 18 to 25. And then, like I said, this evening we will come back again and read about the kings who visit the king. The Magi who came to visit the Christ child and the significance of this in Matthew chapter 2. So here in this second part of the beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew lays out the event of the birth of the king itself. But when it was discovered that Mary was with child, verse 19 says, that Mary's husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Well, because Mary's pregnant. Mary's pregnant with that which has been conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, seeing that she is pregnant, decides that she has been unfaithful. And so, because she has been unfaithful, before they have even consummated their union, he resolves to divorce her. And he says, not wanting to put her, it says here, not wanting to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph, being a just man, he already knows that he is in the right, if indeed she has been unfaithful to him. There is no need for him to have to parade her around and say, look at this woman and what it is that she has done, that you may know that I am justified and she is wicked. Rather, Joseph knows that he is declared innocent of the matter before God and not wanting to make more of an issue of this matter than has already been made, he resolves to divorce her quietly. Now, it is often said of this particular passage that Mary could have been stoned to death. Well, yes, under the Old Testament law, if it was determined indeed that she had been unfaithful, then under that system she would have been stoned. But that particular law was not in effect or being practiced in Israel at this particular time. So Mary really did not have any danger of that being her fate. No one in Israel could put another to death without permission from the Roman government because the Romans were in charge. So this was not a matter in which Mary was probably facing her own execution. What we understand here really is not the danger that Mary was in, but the righteousness that Joseph desired to exercise. We know that Joseph, that Joseph was a law-abiding man, that he wanted to maintain and uphold the justice of God. So desiring to not put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now it is often said that Joseph and Mary were not married at this particular time. And that's actually not true. They were married. Hence why it is said here that Joseph resolved to divorce his wife. What had not yet happened in their marriage was that they had not yet consummated their union, which was why she was still declared a virgin. But she was promised to Joseph, and it was more than an engagement. She was indeed legally bound to him. She was, for all intents and purposes, his wife. But Joseph, thinking that she had been unfaithful, decided to not go through with the next step in their marriage which would have been the consummation of their union. But in verse 20, it says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so it is from the words of the angel here that we come to understand the first reason why Jesus came. And first of all, Jesus came to reign. Now, how did I glean that from the words of the angel that it was said here to Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. How do we glean from that, that Jesus came to reign? Because how did the angel address Joseph? The angel addressed him as the son of David. In the genealogy that we had just read previously at the start of Matthew's gospel, it is said in verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, if Joseph was born of Jacob, why did the angel not address him as Joseph's son of Jacob? This was the way that people were identified at this particular time, their lineage or the household from which they came. So uh, uh, me being Gabriel Hughes, son of Robert, that was how somebody might identify me. Gabriel, son of Robert. And somebody might identify my son, Zachary, son of Gabriel. That was kind of the way surnames would have worked at this particular time. But instead of addressing him as Joseph, son of Jacob, the angel addressed him as Joseph, son of David because the birth of this child was significant to the reign of David and that he would be the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David, that on the throne of David, God would establish his kingdom forever, that covenant you read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so the angel knowing the significance of this birth, as a messenger of God himself, addresses Joseph by a royal title. Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to reign. This is the beginning of Matthew's gospel. This is chapter 1. In the last chapter, in chapter 28, after Christ's death, his resurrection, and before he is about to leave his disciples and ascend back to his Father in heaven, he says to them in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We refer to this as the Great Commission. And the reason why it is a Great Commission is because it is an order that is given from the King himself who prefaces this commission by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Matthew desires in writing this gospel that the reader would understand that Jesus is Christ and King. And so that very address even given in the angel's proclamation when he refers to Joseph as son of David, we read often from Isaiah 9 at Christmas time. I believe it was last week that Brother Allen had read this passage to us. Isaiah 9:6 through 7: For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. My friends, if you are a believer in and a follower of Christ, then you know that he will return again. We talk about his return as being a reign that will be in heaven and on earth. But his reign doesn't just happen at his return. Yes, he will reign over all and will deal with his enemies for a final time. As said in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when Christ returns, death will reign no more. We will live with God forever in his glorious kingdom. But Jesus does not just reign in a future sense. He reigns in the present sense. He reigns even now. We read the following in Ephesians 1, 19 to 21. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he, the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So you have Paul declaring in the first century that Christ reigns now, and he reigns in the age to come. Jesus came to reign. Let's look at a passage together. If you have your Bible open to Matthew, keep your finger there. Use your bookmark if you you desire. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. Keep your finger there in Matthew 1. Let's look at Acts 2. And here we have another declaration, a witness from the apostles that Christ is presently reigning. This is Acts 2, beginning in verse 33. And to catch you up on what's going on here, if you know the story of Pentecost, the apostles are there in Jerusalem. They're sharing the gospel, the news that Christ, just a few weeks ago, the one whom you crucified, has risen again and is declaring the gospel for the very first time there in the presence of the Jews that are celebrating at Pentecost. And so, Peter, in this sermon, in verse 33, says the following. Well, verse 32, let me read that one there. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So there you have the testimony of his resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110, by the way, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. So just a few weeks after, they had put him to death, and he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. By the way, that time between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven was how long? Does anybody know? Forty days is what's said in Acts chapter 1. So for 40 days, he had been seen by hundreds of witnesses, according to 1 Corinthians 15, between his resurrection and his ascension. And so here those weeks later, the apostles are declaring these things before the brethren that are worshiping there in Jerusalem, that the Christ you crucified is the one who now reigns. Jesus Christ came to reign. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. We've read, first of all, that Jesus came to reign. Let's continue on with the angel's address. As he says there, addressing Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the what? Is from the Holy Spirit. So secondly, we can glean from this passage that Jesus came to be holy. None of you were conceived of the Holy Spirit. If you think you were, we're going to have some words afterwards. (laughs) Jesus is the only one who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and this is tremendously significant to his righteousness, to his death, and to his resurrection from the grave. Several years ago, Andy Stanley, the pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, had said that there wasn't as much significance to the birth of Christ as there was to his resurrection resurrection was actually more important than his birth, which doesn't make sense because Matthew doesn't begin by talking about his resurrection. He begins by talking about his birth. They're both important, his birth and his resurrection. Without the virgin birth, there would not be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stanley said Christianity does not hinge on the stories of the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Well, again, I disagree. It's actually both what is the significance of the virgin birth well jesus said in mark 10 18 no one is good but god alone this was to the rich young ruler who had come to him and had said good teacher what must i do to have eternal life and jesus said to him why do you call me good for no one is good but god alone is jesus saying he's not good No, he's challenging the rich young ruler who's addressing him as good. If you're not ready to call me Lord, why would you call me good? Because only God is good. The rest of us, as said in Romans chapter 3, have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. As said in Romans 3, 10 to 12, there is none righteous, not even one. No one does good, not even one person. The only one who is ever good, the only good man who ever lived, is Jesus Christ. Good from his conception, even to his very death. And why is that significant? Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, referring to Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So it was through Adam that sin came into the world, and through sin, death came into the world. Why do we die? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My friends, though, there are many preachers in many pulpits today that wish to downplay sin. Sin is a big deal. Sin is the reason we die. Sin, as said in 1 John, is lawlessness. It is breaking God's law. And all of us have done this. Again, Romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all done wickedly. You've probably had thoughts this morning that were in rebellion against God. Every one of us needs the grace of God every single day. And we have all inherited this sin nature from our father, Adam. And as I said earlier, when we were going through 1 Timothy 2 last week, none of us has any place to blame Adam. Well, it was all your fault. We are all willing participants in his sin. All of us willfully are in rebellion against God, wanting to go our own way instead of God's way. But Jesus is the only one who did not inherit the sin nature of Adam. Why not? Because he was not conceived of the seed of Adam. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. If Christ was conceived of the seed of man, then Adam is his federal head but because Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He is not under the federal headship of Adam. Now, what do I mean by that? What do do we mean when we talk about federal headship? Whenever we use that word federal, where does your mind go first? The government, right? The feds. That's what we think about when we use the word federal. But in in our constitutional republic, The concept of federal headship is not as common to an American mind as it would be for somebody who lives in a monarchy. In a situation of a monarchy, whoever reigns as king is the federal head over that kingdom. As I have read to you this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, we hear those titles that are given to Jesus, that he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, All four of those titles, by the way, are titles that are given to a king. And so when you have a monarch that is over a kingdom, he is the federal head of that kingdom, and whatever that monarch decides goes for the entire kingdom. Whenever one kingdom would fight against another kingdom, it's not just those two kings that are in disagreement with one another. That entire kingdom is against this other kingdom. And so when we consider that Adam is our federal head, Adam who rebelled against God, Adam who decided, I want to go my way rather than God's way, there was a war that was declared against God. It's not one that the side of Adam can win. But nonetheless, all who are descended from Adam, who are born from his line, are at enmity with God. We still bear the likeness of Adam. We are made in God's likeness, even, as declared in Genesis 1.27. Male and female, he created them in his image. But we have taken that image and we've desecrated it with our sin. That which was made in the image of God, that was intended to give glory to God. Instead, we gloried in ourselves and glory in our sinfulness. And decided to go our own way. And drag that which was to be holy and to give glory to God. And we dragged it through filth with the sins and the passions of our flesh that we desired to do. What do we deserve for that? We deserve to be destroyed. And all who have been descended from Adam under his federal headship will all receive that if we stay there. But Christ came not under the federal headship of Adam. He is not born with the sin nature of Adam. He is born in the holiness of the Holy Spirit, perfect and without stain or wrinkle or blemish of any kind. And so now we have what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 as the second Adam. So in Christ, who does everything righteously when the first Adam did not... All who are in Christ Jesus can be born again. Born not under the sin and stain of the first Adam, but under the holiness and the righteousness of the second Adam. And so that in Christ Jesus, we can be forgiven our sins. And that could only happen through Christ. John the Baptist declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who, take away, who came to take away the sin of the world. But that can only be true if Jesus is without sin. And we know that he is without sin because he was born of a virgin conceived of the Holy Spirit so that we might know that Jesus came to be holy. Hebrews 4.15 tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted as you and I have been tempted by various passions of our flesh, but Jesus was not tempted unto sin. Let's look at something else regarding this uh, in Hebrews Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Go to Hebrews 9. Look at another passage together. So keeping your finger in Matthew 1, let's look at Hebrews 9. And here we read in Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Remember in our confession this morning, we read about him being our prophet, priest, and king. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify... For the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's coming back to Matthew chapter 1 again. We have read how Jesus came to reign and secondly that he came to be holy and the significance of this. First Peter t- chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And it's that passage that even leads us to the third truth about why Jesus came that we can glean from this passage. The angel goes on to say in verse 21 that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Number three. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that we've read as we've been going through First Timothy together. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Give his life as a ransom. Because of our sin, we owed a debt to God so great that we could not pay it. But Jesus, who is the perfect God-man, steps into human flesh, lives a perfect life so that when he dies on the cross, his perfect sacrifice is enough to pay for our sins and ransom us from the penalty of death to the possession of God. Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. My friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do you not recognize that you are his possession? You are actually the reward that God gave to the Son for His faithfulness to do the will of the Father. We are His inheritance. We are the people of His own possession who will demonstrate that we belong to Him when we are zealous to do the works that He did. The same righteousness that Christ lived in, we would desire to be holy and pure before Him as well. We belong to God. You were bought with a price as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 therefore honor God with your bodies. In John 1 12 to 13 we read to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. We have been born again. Once again, no longer under the federal headship of Adam. We are under the federal headship of Christ. We don't belong to the devil. We don't belong to death. We don't belong to destruction. We belong to Christ. We belong to righteousness. We belong to his everlasting life. This morning, my daughter came to me and wanted to, uh, she was memorizing a verse out of 1 John 4, 9. She did a wonderful job memorizing it, quoted it perfectly. And after she left my office, I was like, that's such a good verse. I'm going to use it this morning. (laughs) So I went to the passage and pulled out not just that verse, but a couple of others as well. This is 1 John 4, 9 through 10, and verse 14. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation meaning that the wrath of God was satisfied by Christ's death on our behalf. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So again, third reason why Jesus came was to save sinners. Fourth reason, Jesus came. Look at verse 22. After the angel finished this announcement to Joseph, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet and so re- before reading that statement from the prophet, we can understand this. Just from verse 22, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. If you're here in Matthew chapter 1, look at chapter 5. This is in the famous Sermon on the Mount. And it's in Matthew 5 verse 17 where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to Fulfill them. For, me, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In Colossians two sixteen to 17, we read, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That which was written down for us in the Old Testament in the law and the prophets, all of it intended to point to Christ. And though Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that doesn't mean we undo or do away with the law and the prophets. For as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, do we therefore, or I'm sorry, Romans 3, do we therefore overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We read from Hebrews 9 just a moment ago. It's in Hebrews chapter 1 that we see over and over again, the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of that particular book, go through a list of things that had been proclaimed by prophets and how all of it was pointing to Christ and that he is the fulfillment of all of this. Hebrews begins this way long ago, and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has made the heir of all things. Christ came to fulfill the Law and the Prophets. Earlier this week, I was listening to the briefing with Al Mohler. And being that it was coming up on the Christmas weekend, he just decided to do a Christmas mailbag. So instead of really covering the news and events of that day, he just answered questions from listeners. And one question came from a little boy who simply asked Dr. Moeller, why was Jesus born as a baby? Why did he come as a baby? He could have just come as a man, but why a baby? And Dr. Moeller said, well, first of all, the reason why he came as a baby was because that was prophesied. That was exactly said what was going to happen. As we heard this morning from Isaiah 7, the virgin will be with child and she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. So first of all, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. But secondly, Jesus came as a baby because, as I read to you a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 4, it was so that he might sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And in what part of your life have you been most vulnerable but when you were but a cell in your mother's womb developing into the child that would be born. Jesus verifies and sanctifies the entire human process from conception to natural death because he entered into it and experienced all of it just as we do. A third reason why Jesus was born as a baby was to do what I had mentioned a moment ago with Jesus coming to be holy. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And so not just being born or conceived of as a child in the womb, holy from his very conception, but he grows up and lives a sinless life. And through every aspect of the human life experience, he is holy and without sin so that he fulfills all righteousness. When he was baptized by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, says, Permit it now and let us do this together that we may fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized, though he had no sin that needed to be washed away, but he was baptized in obedience to the will of the Father. And as it is commanded for each and every one of us to be baptized, so Christ was also baptized to fulfill all righteousness. We are saved not just by Christ's death. We are also saved by his life. And as he lived righteously, so you as a follower of Christ have been given his righteousness that you may live righteously. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him that which you previously did not have any righteousness to speak of for in and of yourself, no person can declare themselves good. You are made righteous by faith in Christ and the righteousness he fulfilled with his life given to you that you may live righteously also. So once again, we understand from Matthew 1:22 that number four, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. finally, Number five, we get from what is stated in verse 23, the very prophecy that comes from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then you probably have a parenthetical reference right at the end of that. What does it say? Five words. Which means God with us. So number five, Jesus came to reconcile God man. We were previously separated from God because of our sin, as Brother Chris had talked about in Sunday school this morning. We were once with God in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve could walk with God in the cool of the day, but then after sinning, they were separated from him, and the angels, the cherubim, placed at the entrance of the garden so that they could not go into paradise any longer. After sinning against God, we were separated from God. We could not have that kind of fellowship with Him that Adam and Eve had with Him before. But it's through Jesus Christ we are reconciled to God, meaning that we are brought back into fellowship and relationship with Him through Christ. In Sunday school, Chris had asked this question What was the central importance of temple worship? And we all gave various answers to sacrifice. You know, the Ark of the Covenant was there. We would come in and sing praises to God. Of central importance to temple worship is that God was there. God was with them. And that was where God dwelled with his people. First in the tabernacle and then the temple. And when the temple was constructed and built and finished, during the reign of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. It is placed in the Holy of Holies. God comes down in fire and fills that place so much so that the priests couldn't even stand or lift their faces because they would have been incinerated by the holiness of God that came to dwell in that place. He once again dwelled with his people right there at the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the the prostrate angels that had been crafted there, their wings pointed inward, God dwelled in that space right in between as said in the book of Exodus. And that was where the place that God dwelled with his people. Until they continued to reject him and worship false gods. In the book of Ezekiel, we actually are given a vision of God getting up out of the temple and leaving and going up on a hillside to watch Jerusalem be destroyed. Because God is no longer there with his people, they had rejected him. But the promises had been given to us through the prophets that God would make a way for us to be with him again. And it was through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our access to God. He is the way that we can enter into the presence of God. When Jesus died, we read later on in Matthew that the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, and that signified that God, who was there in the Holy of Holies, separated by that curtain from everybody else who had to stand on the outside, God was no longer separated from his people. He now dwells with us. As a matter of fact, my friends, he dwells in us. Every single follower of Christ has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them. So that it is said, a verse that blows my mind every time I read it in Romans chapter 8, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that lives in you, bringing your spirits to life. And so we understand, even from this statement in verse 23, God with us, that Jesus came to reconcile God and man, that we could be with God again. We sing about this in our Christmas carols. In Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so as we consider these five truths of why Jesus came just from this passage that we read here today in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus came to reign, Jesus came to be holy, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and Jesus came to reconcile God and man. Let us look through these again briefly and give some application. Number one, Jesus came to reign. And so, my friends, you must live as if Jesus reigns. I told you in the very beginning of this musical uh, journey to Bethlehem in which the character of Mary, it, she's a complainer. She bickers and she argues. And you know why she's made that way? Because the worldly people who wrote this movie crafted her that way, to be like the rest of us in the world. But if we are in Christ, we're not to be like the world. We're actually to be set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart. We're not to behave as people in the world behave. Philippians 2.14 tells us that in view of these things, because we understand that Christ reigns, this is right after a statement that Paul makes about the fact that Christ reigns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He says, therefore, do everything without arguing and complaining. Every single one of you is convicted by that. (laughs) But then Paul gives the reason, so that you might be blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation in which we shine as lights in the world. My friends, if we know Christ reigns, and he's in control of everything that happens, and nothing is happening outside of his sovereignty, then what cause or reason do we have to bicker and complain about our circumstances? We know that all of this is happening for our good, Romans eight twenty eight, and for his glory. Christ reigns. Number two, Jesus came to be holy. So what does that mean for you? You must also be holy. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, be holy as God is holy. Repeating the very thing that God had said to Israel, you are to be holy because I am holy. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can that be achieved? Because if we are in Christ, he has imparted to us, imputed to us his righteousness that we may live righteously before him. And so, my friends, if you know this, then you must also live as he lived. I had quoted to you under that same heading, 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The verse right before that, 1 Peter two twenty-one, he gave us an example that we may follow in his steps. Number three, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So what is the practical application of this for you? Go and sin no more. Jesus said to those whom he would heal. He said to a man at the pool of Bethesda. He said to a woman who was caught in adultery. He said to them, go and sin no more. And so we must continue in that holiness that we have been called to live in not going after the sins and the passions of our flesh that we were previously in before we became followers of Christ. But now as a follower of Jesus, we desire to live the holy and righteous life that he has called for us to live. Jesus said in John 14:15, "You will show me that you love me when you obey my commandments." Number 4. Jesus came to fulfill The law and the prophets. Now what does this have to do for us practically? But my friends, that you would trust and rely on Jesus Christ. You would know that he has fulfilled everything and that there are more promises that he has yet to fulfill. There's a whole book of Revelation in there with stuff that Jesus has not yet done but is accomplishing. And so we put our trust in Christ knowing that he will fulfill these things. Christ knowing that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So trust in him, knowing that your sins are forgiven in him. Knowing you are you are uh, one with the Father, a child of God because of him. Christ fulfilled all the law and the prophets. So our trust and reliance is not upon our works, but on the finished work of Christ. Finally, number five. Jesus came to reconcile God and man. So we must worship God. We are here this morning worshiping God. But we must worship him every day. Every moment of our waking hours we give unto the Lord. I quoted to you recently as we've been going through 1 Timothy, Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies To be a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and acceptable to him. And this is your spiritual act of worship. It's not just when we come here and do this. This is certainly worship. But this is not the only worship that we offer up to God. Every day that we live is to be an act of worship. You're either going to live your life in rebellion against God. Or you're going to live your life in worship and in honor of God. And if you are a follower of Christ, may it be the latter and not the former. And the promise that we are given is that we, being reconciled to God, will live with him forever in glory. My friends, we look back at the first Advent at Christmas time like this because it teaches us to look forward to the next Advent, that Christ is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. And all who are in Christ Jesus will not perish in the judgment of God, but we will be saved and live with him forever in glory. I love this time of year. I love this season. I consider myself a Puritan, but I must say, I'm not in agreement with most of those Puritans who are opposed to the recognition of Christmas. I love Christmas. I love it with my family. And I just love the atmosphere that it creates in the world around us. I have more evangelical opportunities during the Christmas and the Easter season than I probably do any other time of the year because in those seasons it's kind of on the minds and the lips of people there's something going on in the world right now there's a bunch of people that are remembering a baby that was born in Bethlehem or remembering a carpenter that was hung on a cross at Easter whatever it might happen to be but because those things are on the lips of people it provides that opportunity to talk about What God has done for us so that we might share the life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone else. That they may come to faith in Jesus and be saved. We remember what God has done for us when we come to this table and we partake in the Lord's Supper. And so let us right now prepare our hearts for that, that we may partake of the body that was broken for us and the cup that represents the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of sins. So that in these tangible ways, these tangible reminders, we might be reminded of the significance of even the things that we've read in the text this morning. So take a moment to prepare your hearts as we come to the table. And in this moment of quiet, would the ushers, uh, the elders come forward in preparation for serving the Lord's table.